Welcome to Lincoln Log, where we speak with leading historians and other officials about their stories, research, and wisdom. Expand your knowledge and indulge your curiosity here on Lincoln Log. This podcast is produced by the Abraham Lincoln Association, aiding and promoting Abraham Lincoln's life and legacy. Founded in 1908, the ALA remains the nation's oldest and largest Lincoln organization. Learn more at abrahamlincolnassociation.org. Greetings. I am your host, Joshua Claiborne, and I am pleased to welcome Alan Gelzo to our Lincoln Log podcast. Alan is the Senior Research Scholar in the Council of the Humanities at Princeton University and Director of the James Madison Program's Initiative in Politics and Statesmanship. Previously, he served as Professor of the Civil War Era and Director of Civil War Era Studies at Gettysburg College. Alan is one of the world's foremost leaders in American intellectual history with a particular focus on Civil War Era scholarship. He is the author of many books, including Abraham Lincoln, Redeemer President, Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, The End of Slavery in America, Gettysburg, The Last Invasion, and Reconstruction, A Concise History. These books were all bestsellers and earned several prestigious awards. He is a frequent contributor to various newspapers and magazines, and I find that when Gelzo has a piece in the Wall Street Journal, for example, it really turns heads. He ranks among my favorite active public intellectuals, so I'm very happy to have him with us. Alan, thank you for joining the podcast. Joshua, thank you for having me on board today. Well, let's begin with some, some modern issues that we see come up uh, that relate to your area of expertise, and I think uh, Lincoln has, has a hand in this as well. Many political and social commentators note the division within American politics and American social life, occasionally even remarking that we are more divided than ever. I, I personally am a bit more bullish on Americans and our future, but do you believe we are as divided as we've ever been? I am afraid that, that we are, although not necessarily in such a way as to lead to the kind of crisis that we saw in 1861, which Lincoln had to deal with. The fundamental cause of the Civil War, as Lincoln said in the, in the second inaugural, was slavery. And people have tried to slide around that, people have tried to qualify that, people have tried to escape it. I don't think any of those devices are successful. It simply is there. Slavery is the fundamental cause of the American Civil War. And Lincoln himself said that in the second inaugural. But slavery would never have been the sole cause of civil war. Some other things had to take place as well. Uh, civil war happened because, first of all, of, of sectionalism. Uh, slavery was concentrated in 13 contiguous states of the Union. And together, because they were geographically contiguous, they formed a geographical block formidable enough to qualify, or at least to look like, a nation state. In fact, if uh, all of the slaveholding states, all of them had joined the Confederacy, uh, when I say all of them, I'm, I would say that that would include then Missouri, Kentucky, uh, Maryland, and Delaware. If all the states where slavery had been legalized had joined the Confederacy, it would have been larger than most European nations. And in fact, would have been the fourth largest industrial power in the world. Hmm. Uh, now, by contrast, if slavery had existed only in, let's say, Minnesota, uh, Maine, uh, Florida, uh, Louisiana, 
there would have been no civil war because none of those states touched each other. None of those states were in a geographical position to have passed themselves off mm -hmm. as some kind of critical mass of resistance. Slavery in those states would then have been dealt with as a moral reform issue, but it wouldn't have ascended to the level of being a cause for civil war. So sectionalism is an important factor here. Sectionalism in turn was aided by the sense that the Republic is a federal union. And as soon as you speak about federation, you imply that pieces of that federation are somehow detachable. So the notion of secession could then be used as a mechanism to protect slavery in the parts of the federal union where it was legalized. Now, mm -hmm. none of those conditions apply today. If there are geographical variances of red versus blue, conservative versus progressive and so on like that, if there are variances and even geographical variances, they exist within the states. They don't unite states mm -hmm. in blocks of opposition. So therefore I look at this and say, yes, there are serious divisions, but we're not talking about something that brings us to the threshold of civil war, simply because the critical masses that made civil war possible in 1861 are not operating on the scene today. So, so we lack the geographic uh, ingredient that may be necessary, but you did allude to slavery being the wedge issue. Do you, do you think we have the seeds for that sort of single issue or wedge that could divide us today? No, but what we do have are the seeds for multiple issues that cohere as worldviews. Mm -hmm. So if there is going to be a wedge, it won't be a single issue. It will be a cultural complex mm -hmm. with politics trailing along after it. Um, and, and that is worrisome because since the 1970s, we really have developed into what really boils down to two incommensurate cultures. And, and I use this word incommensurate, not because it's got a lot of syllables, but because it captures in one, in one word, the fact that you've got two value systems, you've got two cultures in America, which really have no point of commonality mm -hmm. and no point of resolution. They're incommensurate. Right. They don't talk to each other. They, they, don't have, they don't have any boundaries that touch each other. Uh, on abortion, for instance, there's, there's no middle ground. There can't be any middle ground. Right. I mean, you're either for it or you're against it. And the same is true of a host of related cultural issues. Uh, the issues that get connected to it that form a cultural mass. So not only do we no longer speak a common cultural language, um, we don't even regard those who participate in the alternate culture as sharing anything of worth mm -hmm. with ourselves, with each other. So it's not single issues so much as it is the mass of cultural worldviews, of two incommensurate cultural worldviews, which, which simply, I mean, they're sharing the same physical space, but they simply don't speak the same language. They don't share any kind of fundamental shared cultural value. And that, that really is the basis of serious division in American society today. Well, that's a great segue to another modern issue I wanted to touch upon and get your thoughts on. Uh, the 1619 Project, which, as you know, is an ongoing project developed by the New York Times Magazine with the goal of re-examining the legacy of slavery in the United States and time for the 400th anniversary of the arrival 
of the first Americans, Africans, I should say, in Virginia. The project kicked off many essays on the history of different aspects of contemporary American life, which many of the authors believe have roots in slavery and its aftermath. Um, and for our listeners who may not be aware, there are even now efforts to adopt these essays in book form as school textbooks. And uh, this project garnered praise from all the usual suspects. Um, the creator was awarded the 2020 Pulitzer Prize for commentary. But um, as you know, the project attracted considerable criticism for its inaccuracies and approach as well. And you pinned one such column, um, which I suspect you didn't come up with the title, but you wrote nonetheless it was titled, The 1619 Project's Outrageous Lying Slander of Abe Lincoln. Uh, could you summarize your complaints with that project and, and your perspective on it? Well, you're right. I didn't write that title. Uh, <laughs> the title was written by the op-ed editor of, of the New York Post. And I have to say that when I read it, it was a little like, what? <laughs> I, a little, it was a bit too, too screaming at the top of the voice. Um, but what I actually said in the op-ed, uh, which was considerably uh, more uh, uh, reluctant in tone, uh, was oriented towards the critique of Abraham Lincoln, in particular, that appears in the 1619 Project. But in substance, the 1619 Project is a simply wrong-headed initiative in almost all of what it claims, and especially when it tries to speak about American history. Uh, 1619 is taken as the beginning, the real beginning of American history, because that is when Africans first were brought to American shores to be sold as slaves. Actually, 1619 is not the beginning. 1619 is the end. 1619 is the last time that slavery gets introduced into a modern society. And then over a period of time until 1863, it is gradually hammered and then finally abolished. 1619, in other words, marks the beginning of the end of slavery as a viable system of human labor. That's saying a great deal because until you get to 1619, virtually everybody in every society, in every culture, on every continent, except perhaps Antarctica, uh, regarded slavery as being one of the normal factors of human life. That was how you organized uh, labor in a society. Uh, when slaves are brought to America in 1619, it is the last time a society is going to be organized, incorporating slavery in any kind of significant way. So what 1619 indicates is the last effort of an old and ancient form of labor, which is going to be defeated first by 1776 and then ultimately by 1863. So 1619, it's not the beginning, it's the end. Then the beginning you, you of the move, end, I guess. Yeah, yeah, and you, you move from there in, into some of the howlers that are, that are contained within the 1619 Project. I mean, the 1619 Project claims in its lead essay, the American Revolution was waged to protect slavery. There is not a shred of evidence of that. That is pure, raw, unembarrassed assertion. And in fact, one of the historians who was consulted 
for the 1619 Project, actually wrote an op-ed of her own describing how when she read this, she warned the 1619 Project authors that this was an inaccuracy and they brushed right beside, brushed right beyond her. Uh, that publication, that op-ed that she published, of course, brought forth an embarrassed admission by the New York Times, but it was a very halting and, and reluctant admission of the commission of a serious and embarrassing historical error. But we go on from there. Abraham Lincoln is supposed to be, in the telling of the 1619 Project, a racist demagogue. A racist demagogue. Tell me, explain to me how Abraham Lincoln can be a racist dem demagogue when he frees slaves by presidential decree. A presidential decree that he was quite aware involved serious constitutional risks on his part. Mm -hmm. Recruits former slaves and free blacks as soldiers, puts the uniform of the United States on their backs and guns in their hands and sends them out to kill white supremacists in gray uniforms? This is what a racist does? I mean, please explain this to me because it doesn't make any sense. Well, Michael uh, Burlingham, and, 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 it goes, and it goes on, Josh, from there. I mean, they came, capitalism, it is claimed, was invented by slaveholders. No, I'm sorry. Capitalism was, was invented in large measure by Adam Smith, and slaveholders were the ones who were lining up to denounce capitalism. You, and you don't have to go very far to find this. They didn't go very far. The research on this almost de uh, scarcely deserves the word research. But uh, capitalists knew quite well that what they were doing was something anathema to slavery, and slaveholders knew that what capitalism was anathema to slavery. Everybody knew this in the 19th century, but apparently the, the authors of the 1619 Project didn't take the trouble to read far enough to find that out. Take it together, what you have in the 1619 Project is a narrative of despair. And it's written by journalists who have, I'm sorry, a feeble grasp of history. I don't mean to dump on journalists, but they are journalists who don't read very much history but who do understand that narratives of despair get more readers. And so it's being turned into school curriculums, which I hope the viewers of, 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 of what we are saying here today will ask their school districts if this is being introduced and will raise these objections to it because it is as wild as if you were introducing conspiracy theories about the Kennedy assassination or the protocols of the elders of Zion for school districts to use as curriculums to instruct children. Michael Burlingham, who was on this podcast earlier, um, made the point that, uh, you know, what really pushed John Wilkes Booth over the edge to assassinate Lincoln was not even necessarily the Emancipation Proclamation, but his suggestions that free blacks should have the right to vote. And that is what ultimately led to the assassination. And so therefore Lincoln was in many respects, one of the first martyrs to, to black civil rights. I mean, and American blacks in 1865 understood that when Frederick Douglass gives his eulogy in the summer of 1865 to Lincoln, to a packed audience at 
Cooper Institute, the same Cooper Institute where Lincoln delivered his memorable address in February of 1860. Douglas describes Lincoln as emphatically the colored man's president. And that, in fact, is a speech he delivers in multiple locations. I would like to assume that Frederick Douglass, in 1865, on the ground at the time, understood the dynamics of the situation far better than a journalist in 2020 who has never done any work in history. Uh, but maybe I'm assuming too much. Well, let's talk a little bit more about Lincoln in particular. I mean, obviously, he's considered one of the best, if not the best American presidents. People that are listening to the Lincoln Log pro podcast probably have a predilection to agree with that in some, some respects, but what accounts for Lincoln's greatness? Did the crisis of the Civil War amplify his greatest attributes, or would we have still considered Lincoln a great man if the Civil War had never occurred? Well, there's really two answers to that. One is about the man himself, because Lincoln possesses certain qualities and when I'm talking about qualities, this is very ambiguous. I mean, there's, you can't put this on a shelf and buy it. There's no way to quantify it. But he possesses certain qualities which really do make for great leadership. His resilience, his understanding of how political systems worked, um, his persistence in pushing through to conclusions, his ability to see and adopt the long view of things. In 1865, Ulysses Grant put the question to him, was there any moment, Mr. President, when you despaired of the outcome of the war? And Lincoln's response was, no, no. I mean, he had his moments when he was, if he did not tear his hair out, he was willing to tear parts of his beard out. But those were incidental moments. The overarching tide of where the war is going to go was something he had that coup of the eye that he could see. Leonard Sweat, who frequently did personal embassy for Lincoln during the war years, once went to Lincoln despairing about the outcome of events. And he said Lincoln had this little memorandum book in which he had pasted all kinds of interesting data kinds of things you'd cut out of almanacs and newspapers, meetings of conventions, resolutions of societies, statistics. And Lincoln took him through these things and said, this is where we're going. This is where we're going to be six months, 18 months out. And Sweat came away from it completely reassured. Lincoln knew what the telltale signs were. He knew what the data was to look for. And he could have that sense of where things were headed. So you put those qualities together and you really do have someone with extraordinary capacity for leadership. But that only answers one of the questions. The other part of, of the question is uh, what made Lincoln's presidency a great presidency? I think we would regard Lincoln's presidency as a great presidency, as a, as a hinge presidency, even if the Civil War had not followed. I mean, for one thing, his election as an avowed anti-slavery president, the first time someone is getting elected to the presidency, who is publicly and unashamedly anti-slavery. That election was the handwriting on the wall, that slavery had no political future in America, that it was doomed to isolation and ultimately to asphyxiation. And the proof, of course, is in the pudding. Southern states seceded. There was no reason for seceding if they had not seen that same handwriting on the wall. 
Lincoln anticipated that the asphyxiating process might require some time, might require decades, might require 100 years. But what was also true was that in the 19th century, whenever the tide did turn against slavery, the process of its disappearance invariably accelerated far beyond its original projections. So in 1862, 1861, he might have been saying, well, it might take 100 years. Well, set the process in motion and emancipation would take on its own speed and accelerate. And that was going to happen. That was simply in the cards of things because there was no way that the slave power after Lincoln's election had the strength to dominate the national government. But not only that, he brings to the White House all the domestic policies of the old Whig party and of Henry Clay's American system. I mean, Clay's American system is built on three things, national banking, tariffs, internal improvements. I once had a sweatshirt made up, vote Whig. And <laughs> I thought that would get attention taking it to the polls on election day. Um, vote Whig and underneath it, national banking, tariffs, internal improvements. Probably some people who didn't know what a Whig was must have thought I was having a little bit too much partying going on before election day, but I thought I wanted to make a historical statement. And in fact, I sent one of those uh, to some friends, including Michael Holt, the great remembrancer of the Whig party. Well, Lincoln, when he becomes president, brings Henry Clay's American system finally to fruition in American politics. And in fact, the Civil War gives him a chance to implement Clay's system far more easily than would have been the case otherwise. And implement those points of the American system he does. And the result is the end of six decades of Jefferson-Jackson dominance of the national government and the inauguration of a new political regime, which lasts you know, certainly until 1916, and perhaps we could even say until 1932 and the election of Franklin Roosevelt. So even if there'd been no civil war, Josh, um, we would still look back on Abraham Lincoln's presidency as a critical hinge, great presidency in American history. I, I love that so many people seem to underestimate him. You mentioned Leonard Sweat, who once said that anybody who took him for a simple-minded man would soon end up with his back in a ditch because behind the appearances, there was a man with extraordinary qualities. So I, that, I agree with you. I think that that comment of Sweat's was probably the truest and most perceptive statement anyone ever made about Lincoln. And Josh, my goodness, how many, many people wound up in that ditch, uh, underestimating Lincoln, thinking that he was some county courthouse lawyer from the sticks who could be manipulated, who could be ignored. And no sooner did they ha draw that conclusion than they would suddenly mysteriously find themselves all trussed up and Lincoln going his, his merry way. Case in point, Salmon Chase. No one thought higher of himself than Salmon Chase. No one thought that he deserved control of public affairs more than Salmon Chase. Mm -hmm. He underestimated Lincoln hugely. And what did he end up with at the end of it? Uh, getting kicked upstairs to the Supreme Court, where his chief function <laughs> was to ratify everything that the Lincoln administration was doing. All right. Well, Lincoln's political philosophy changed a great deal over time. Uh, as a young man, you note that he was a Whiggish political thinker. 
But in the, in the 1850s, he increasingly appealed to natural rights. And then during the Civil War, he, he adopts more and more religious language and religious imagery in his speeches. What do you see accounting for Lincoln's uh, growth and evolution? Well, I think that growth is the wrong word hmm. to use about Lincoln. Uh, the Lincoln whom we meet in 1837, when he puts forward his first resolution against slavery in the Illinois legislature, is pretty much the same Lincoln whom we meet on January 1st, 1863, signing the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, the Lincoln who occupies the presidency is the same Lincoln who stood up in the Illinois legislature to demand banking, canals, roadways. Uh, the Lincoln who talks about God in 1865 is still the same Lincoln who balks at joining a church. And the Lincoln who talks about believing in a doctrine of necessity in 1847 is still telling Albert Hodges in 1864 that he has not shaped events, but that events have shaped him. I think what is remarkable about Lincoln is how little changes in his mental makeup. What does change is the situation around him. And when that situation changes, then he responds with new questions and new answers. But those new questions and new answers are still governed in 1865 by the same instincts that shaped him 30 years before at the start of his political career. Uh, I think that people who talk about Lincoln's growth or Lincoln's evolution either do not know Lincoln very well mm-hmm. or else they talk about his growth or his evolution because they would like him to turn into something closer to their own ideas rather than his own. And that's not dealing justly with the Abraham Lincoln, who lived from 1809 to 1865. Hmm. Lincoln's greatest speeches are considered masterpieces of political prose. Some, such as the Gettysburg Address, are even considered foundational documents for American political life. Um, You've written um, not just wonderful essays, but even books on some of these uh, great speeches. Why do his greatest speeches still resonate so powerfully today? As a speaker, as a rhetorician, he had two great gifts which had been honed in his years as a trial attorney. Uh, One was the compactness of what he had to say. He once made the complaint about another politician that no one he knew could pack uh, fewer ideas into more words. Well, Lincoln is the complete opposite of that. He has the capacity to pack tremendous amounts of meaning into smaller and smaller spaces that require you to sit and pick them apart for long periods of time. He was a very careful user of words. And Herndon talked about him, describing him in the law office, that Lincoln would ball up within himself. Lincoln would sit absorbed in himself, trying to find the right phrase, trying to find the right word that would give that lapidary sense of understanding to everybody who heard him. And you see this show up so often, uh, I, I think particularly of the Corning letter, where he's responding to people who have criticized abuses of civil liberties, and especially the arrest of Clement Laird Volandigam. And he poses this question 
which, which, which is like one of those moments when you turn a lamp on in a dark room. Must I shoot a simple soldier boy who deserts and not touch the hair of a wily agitator who induces him to desert? I mean, the question simply is unanswerable on those terms. How, how long it took him to come up with that and in, and in one question, I don't know. But that one question levels walls around cities. Uh, he could do that in such a way that is so remarkable and never more remarkable than in the 272 words of the Gettysburg Address, where compactness is simply extraordinary. Yet it's not compactness for the sake of compactness. I mean, there are some people who, whose language is anorexic to the point of getting more anorexic, and you wish they would explain themselves. You don't have that problem with Lincoln. When Lincoln is compact, the meanings are crystal clear. But that leads me to the other thing that I think has a great deal to making his documents and his speeches and writings uh, so formative, and that is he aimed to persuade people. He had spent uh, almost a quarter of a century out on the Eighth Judicial Circuit going from county courthouse to county courthouse, defending, prosecuting, and having to do it in front of juries that quite frequently are drawn from the people standing at the back of the courtroom. Mm -hmm. He knows he has to impress that jury right away. He has to make the case clear at once. And if he doesn't do it to those farmers or to those clerks, then he's going to have to find himself another line of work. That need for clarity and persuasion, always persuasion, is the second great shaping factor in Lincoln. So when you read Lincoln, you are always reading someone who is out to persuade you. And he has become, over the practice of a professional lifetime, he has become exceptionally good at it. When you read Lincoln even now, the hand of persuasion continues to reach out and grab you. I, I love that. And, you know, the irony, of course, was his voice was actually rather high-pitched and nasally, and he wasn't very photogenic. But as you note, um, he had so many other qualities, his logic and his training, um, his persuasion, that, uh, that really made him one of the, if not probably the best uh, speaking American president. Well, you know, there was one observer of the Lincoln-Douglas debates who said that if you listened to Stephen A. Douglas for 15 minutes, you were immediately persuaded by him because of the fury and the violence with which he expressed himself, the way he shook that lion-like mane of hair, the way he stamped his foot on the platform. And then Lincoln would get up in that high-pitched, half-cracked tenor voice, that unmusical voice. <laughs> and he would begin speaking. And when you listened to Lincoln, this observer said for 15 minutes, he carried you away with him mm -hmm. because he got the hook of his logic in your mouth and he just reeled you in. Yeah. Douglas would try to overpower you, but he could not convince you. Lincoln made no effort to overpower you. He convinced because he laid out a proposition. And if you assented the proposition, then every point thereafter, you had to move along his line of thinking.
That was his great accomplishment. He was the great persuader. Mm-hmm. Let's turn a bit to uh, the Constitution, the Declaration, and I, I, you know, so obviously I think every area you write uh, really is uh, insightful, uh, but where perhaps it's because I'm a lawyer, I, I love reading your columns and your books where it really dissects uh, the Reconstruction Amendments, the Declaration of Independence and Constitution. Um, I think you're very insightful there, and obviously Lincoln was there too. Uh, the Declaration of Independence held, as we know, that all men are created equal, but that wasn't true um, for the founders um, at that time. It generally meant only all white landowning men are created equal. And many of these unfortunate realities came to bear in the Constitution. Um, as we know, Lincoln fundamentally reoriented our view of the Declaration and Constitution and how they work together. It became a new birth, really. Um, and alluding to Proverbs 25, Lincoln called the Constitution the picture of silver inside of which was the apple of gold, the Declaration of Independence. Um, the Declaration was really central uh, to his thinking, and as, as, as you have noted before, and as you know, in Philadelphia, shortly before his inauguration, he said that he never had an idea politically that did not spring from the Declaration of Independence. Um, he really recast the Declaration as an aspiration. Uh, the Constitution and the laws of the U.S. were fixed at any given time, but for Lincoln, the Declaration was really the beacon and the aspiration we should strive to achieve. Um, it, I'd like to hear your thoughts on that and how um, how really uh, significant that was in, in, in the, the course of American history. And then also like your insight just from intellectual history because the great Harry Jaffa did so much to illuminate my own view of that issue. Um, I, I really enjoyed his writing um, and our view of Lincoln in the subject. And so I'd be curious how much of Jaffa's work um, in, in influenced you um, and how you believe Jaffa's scholarship holds up today. I'm always dicey about binaries. <laughs> I'm always dicey about either or. And especially on the subject of Lincoln, I'm, I get a sort of uneasy crawling feeling mm-hmm. when someone wants to present me, and, and I've had this happen from time to time, um, with the idea that, well, Lincoln is either the Constitution or he's the Declaration of Independence. And I, I don't, first of all, I don't know why that's an either or. Uh, Lincoln is both the Constitution and the Declaration. <clears throat> that, that, in fact, is the whole genius <clears throat> of the image of the, the apple of gold and the picture of silver, that the two are in a symbiotic relationship. The one articulates the aspiration. The other articulates the means by which we achieve that aspiration. And Lincoln never denigrated the Constitution at the expense of the Declaration of Independence. When he speaks about never having had an idea politically uh, that departed from the Declaration of Independence, he never expected that that was going to be at the expense of the Constitution. To the contrary, when he was a member of Congress and President Polk took us into the Mexican War, uh, Lincoln was on his feet to protest the Polk administration and what Polk's cabinet and Polk's supporters were doing as a violence committed against the Constitution. He talks, in fact, about the Constitution as this perfect document. He did not even want to, con- to, to think about amending the Constitution um, because the document itself was as perfect as men could make it. And Hands have not touched it and altered it, and 
our hands should not do that either. So for him, the overall goal of self-government is served by both. The Declaration sets out the aspiration that we, that we aim for. The Constitution gives us the means by which we can achieve that aspiration. Mm-hmm. And I don't think he ever wanted to let go of one or the other. In September of 1863, Salmon Chase wrote to him. This is an unusual letter. But he wrote to Lincoln about the Emancipation Proclamation, which had now been in effect for some nine months. He wrote to Lincoln and said, shouldn't we expand the Emancipation Proclamation simply to cover the entire country? Bear in mind, he's saying this because the Emancipation Proclamation, when it is issued, speaks only to emancipating slaves in the Confederacy. It exempts Kentucky, Maryland, Missouri, Delaware, the four slaveholding states that didn't join the Confederacy, plus the zones that were of the Confederacy that were then occupied by federal authority. Now, people have looked at those exceptions and scratched their heads and said, what is he doing here? Why do, and they're saying, as Salmon chased it, why didn't he just go ahead and abolish slavery in those other places? Well, because there were constitutional restraints. Right. He's issuing the Emancipation Proclamation on the strength of his powers, as the Constitution describes him, as commander-in-chief. Your commander-in-chief in time of war. Well, Delaware, Maryland, Missouri, and Kentucky were not at war with the United States. So he can't exercise war powers there. Right. And therefore, he can't make the Emancipation Proclamation apply there. Now, in September of 1863, with the proclamation already in operation not for nine months, Chase comes to Lincoln and asks, why don't we just make it general? Oh, it's, it's been, you had the proclamation now for nine months. Why don't we just broaden this and make it apply everywhere? Lincoln writes back and says, I can't do that. I can't do that because the Constitution does not permit me to do that. If I did that, he asks Chase, would I not be in the boundless field of absolutism? Would I not be giving up the very principles of the Constitution that we are fighting for? Now, he's saying this. Even though, strictly speaking, he could have claimed the power to do this. I mean, he had the army at his disposal. But he doesn't, because his reverence for the Constitution is such that mm-hmm. he won't take that step. So, and, and by the way, it's interesting that he uses this phrase, the boundless field of absolutism. That's not your usual Lincoln phrase. Where did he get that from? <clears throat> he got it from Jefferson. The phrase appears in one of Jefferson's letters. Mm. And somehow that's stuck in Lincoln's mind. And when Chase comes to him with this, what does he refer to in defending the Constitution? He cites words from the author of the Declaration of Independence. Mm -hmm. So for for Lincoln, the, the two cannot be taken apart. They cannot be prized apart. He does not set one over against the other. He does not set one higher than the other. The two must work together. So there is aspiration, but there is aspiration in both. Right. Now you're asking about, about Harry Jaffa. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I've had people sometimes say to me, um, you were a pupil of Harry Jaffa's, weren't you? And I say, mm, no, I, I wasn't. I, I never sat under Harry Jaffa. Uh, I'm a historian. I'm, I'm not a political scientist. I, I don't speak political science. 
<clears throat> which is a language stem all of its own. Um, I, I never, in fact, met Harry Jaffa uh, until many years after I uh, had written uh, Redeemer President um, and the Emancipation Proclamation book. My first encounter with Harry Jaffa was one night <clears throat> when I got a phone call and I pick up the phone and the voice barks out, hello, this is Harry Jaffa. I kind of, I kind of air, air mouth this to my wife. It's Harry Jaffa. <laughs> because I had read Jaffa's Crisis of the House Divided. Mm -hmm. It was the book which persuaded me when I read it in 1980 that Lincoln was a man worth taking seriously as a right. man of ideas. But I had never met Jaffa. I had never sat under Jaffa. And that phone call was my first encounter with Harry. By the way, the, the phone call was to inform me of how I had gotten X, Y, and Z wrong. <laughs> and I was later assured by people that that was SOP for Harry Jaffa. And I, and I just rolled with it. And yeah. Years went by and we did, in fact, uh, share a couple of platforms. But I was never a student of Jaffa's. Uh, that, that honor belongs to a number of other people. Um, was I influenced by Jaffa's work? Certainly I was influenced by Crisis of the House Divided to take Lincoln seriously. Do I believe Jaffa's scholarship holds up today? I believe it does, yes. Now, mind you, many historians have difficulty reading Jaffa because what they're reading is, is political science, right. and that's a different discipline. And, and I will confess that it can be a little heavy going. I feel like a raving empiricist whenever I'm dealing with political science. But uh, I do believe that Jaffa's uh, scholarship holds up today. I only wish he had lived long enough to be able to complete the trajectory that he had promised in Crisis of the House Divided that would take him to examination of Lincoln's writings all the way up to and including the Gettysburg Address. Mm -hmm. uh, that, alas, uh, did not happen. He got as far as the special message to Congress of July 4th, 1861 in A New Birth of Freedom, um, but that, that third volume of a right. possible Jaffa trilogy that uh, still remains to be written uh, to take us to the Gettysburg Address. Right, right. We, we talked about Lincoln and the view of the Constitution and the Declaration. He's often criticized for his suspension of habeas corpus during the war, which some consider an unconstitutional act. Certainly, um, Confederate sympathizers uh, use that as a common criticism of, of, of Lincoln, or at least those more sympathetic to the South. Do you believe Lincoln's actions there, uh, well, I know you don't, but it, we're not uh, unconstitutional, but, but what were Lincoln's uh, reasons for that? And could you touch upon his actions there and, and their constitutionality? Well, it's funny you should mention uh, neo-Confederate critics of Lincoln on the habeas corpus suspension. Since Jefferson Davis suspended habeas corpus as well, I don't think that neo-Confederates have a lot to stand upon mm -hmm. on that issue or on many others. Not that I don't hear from them. I have, I, Josh, I have a file in my email marked cranks to which most of my neo-Confederate hate mail goes. Um, I, I have even received death threats, believe it or not, from, from neo-Confederates. I once had to have Pennsylvania state troopers oh uh, intervene in one situation. Uh, I, I'm afraid that I regarded the... Um, I'm afraid I regarded it with probably more insouciance than the state police appreciated. My reaction was, oh, really? They're threatening me, threatening me uh, with bodily harm? Oh, let them come on. Let them see what a Yankee can do. We can have the Civil War all over again. <laughs> um, 
but that you know that just simply drove the feistiness uh, uh, from on out, from under its usual covering. Um, in in terms of the constitutionality of habeas corpus, the the Constitution provides for the suspension of the writ of habeas corpus, and it does so explicitly in in Article One. And it says that in time of rebellion, in time of national emergency, the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus may be suspended. And Lincoln looked at that and said, well, what we are facing is quite obviously a situation of insurrection and insurgency. So that means that it is possible to suspend the writ of habeas corpus. The objection comes as to who has the power to do the suspending. Because habeas corpus suspension is described in Article 1, which is about the powers of Congress. Mm -hmm. So you might conclude from that, and many did conclude from that, that it is Congress which has to authorize the suspension of the writ. But Lincoln's argument was that, well, it's in Article 1, but in fact, it was moved to Article 1 from other locations in the Constitution as the Constitutional Convention was writing the document. And even though it is in Article 1, it does not explicitly say Congress has the authority to suspend and Congress has the sole authority to suspend the writ of habeas corpus. Now, since Congress was not in session at the time the right. Civil War breaks out, Lincoln is saying, uh, am I supposed to wait for several months until Congress can be assembled before the writ of habeas corpus can be suspended? Are we to let rack and ruin and riot prevail? Are we to let the Confederacy get away with what it's doing uh, simply uh, because Congress doesn't happen to be in session to act this way? No. The purpose of the writ of habeas corpus is not an enablement of Congress the suspension of the writ of habeas corpus is to deal with a situation of rebellion and insurrection. So let's deal with it and suspend habeas corpus, which he does. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think that there is anything about that which violates the intentions of the Constitution. That was the argument he made in his special message to Congress. It was the argument made by his attorney general, Edward Bates. It was the argument made by a number of jurists who write on the subject of habeas corpus at that time. Um, so if, if I have to take this all together, um, then I have to say, what is the provision for the suspension of the writ there in the Constitution for, if not to deal with exactly the situation Lincoln was dealing with? If he had not suspended the writ of corpus, habeas corpus at that point, and acted uh, accordingly, then he would have been derelict in his duty as president and would have been false to the oath that he had taken um, not much more than, uh, than, well, a little bit less than two months before on the steps of the Capitol. So those are his fundamental reasons, and I think that they are sound reasons. Let's turn a little bit to Lincoln's religious views as one of only two president, presidents to have never formally joined a church. People often wonder just how much Abraham Lincoln uh, believed himself. Uh, when you, you say the nation is under God, um, does he consider himself to be um, under, under God as well? Did, did Lincoln die a Christian? And, and could you summarize his, his religious views towards the end of, in particular? Well, if by a Christian we mean someone who adheres formally to statements of Christian doctrine or who submits to 
um, the structure of an organized uh, Christian body, a denomination, a church, then we would have to say, no, no, he did not die a Christian. There are many people who wanted to make that happen uh, posthumously, and sometimes they invented a number of interesting stories that Lincoln was planning to join the New York Avenue Presbyterian Church uh, uh, on Easter Sunday um, mm -hmm. of 1865, uh, or that Lincoln had been secretly baptized. I, I, I've heard many such stories. They're well-intentioned by, by people who think that they are carrying out what they see as Lincoln's intentions, um, but there's no evidence for them whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So did Lincoln die a Christian? I would have to say, if the term Christian is used with any substantial meaning, no. Uh, if you want to talk about it as a metaphor for a nice person who had some elements of spirituality, that's different, but I'm, then you're using it as a metaphor and not strictly speaking uh, as a description of anything you could call Christian. Uh, and I think people really should use the term as it ought to be used. Uh, he never does join a church. I think that says a great deal right there. Uh, but he does consider himself to be under God. And he talks during his presidency more and more increasingly about being under God. Why does that happen? Well, I think it happens first and foremost because in the development of the argument over slavery in the 1850s, he has to find an authority to appeal to that somehow arches over the heads of Stephen Douglas's appeal to popular sovereignty. Mm -hmm. And the only place he can find that is in natural law and natural right. Well, where does natural law come from? Natural law has to come from a natural law giver. And therefore, that's going to push Lincoln towards making statements about God, which are more and more concrete as time goes by. Mm -hmm. The war itself pushed him in this direction. Because here he is looking at the way the war is going and nothing about the Civil War moved according to plan. Lincoln was a great believer in progress. He was a great believer in certain inevitabilities. And the Civil War just didn't seem to be behaving according to those inevitabilities. I mean, in 1862, here's a Confederate army, which is going from victory to victory. It looks like foreign powers might intervene to rescue the Confederacy. Nothing seems to be going according to the plan of progress. So what does he do? He sits down and writes this memorandum on the will of God, which almost reads like a ge geometric proof in which he tries to sort out, all right, if God is God, then why is this happening? And why is that happening? And what a conclusion are we to draw from that? He repeats that in 1864 in the letter that he writes to Eliza uh, uh, Gurney. And you see it again in the second inaugural, but it's always conditional. It's always if. Notice in the second inaugural, and he talks about the justice of God. If we shall assume if God is this way, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? He will never come out and embrace what is could be called specifically Christianity. He will use Christian terms. I mean, a new birth of freedom, I mean, that's picked up right from frontier revivalism. But does that make him a Christian? No. It makes him a person who thinks seriously about religion. Mm -hmm. But he's a person who is shaped above all by his Calvinist upbringing. And what does Calvinism teach you? 
Calvinism teaches you that it is God who chooses you, God who elects you. You don't choose God. God, in his sovereignty, elects you for salvation. That lesson told Lincoln, I can't do anything towards my own salvation. I have to wait for God to move on me. And in a sense, that is what he spends his life doing, waiting to see that sign of God moving and never quite seeing it by his own testimony. I know historians uh, generally hate hypotheticals, uh, but I, I may try and ask one anyway. And that's in thinking about Lincoln's legacy, um, it may be helpful to think about what might have happened had he not been elected in 1860. Could you comment briefly on his legacy and how critical it was for him to be in office at that time? Let us suppose that Stephen A. Douglas becomes president of the United States, 16th president of the United States. What is going to be the future? The future will probably be some form of secession. There will be a Southern Confederacy because the Southerners did not trust Douglas. He was a Northern Democrat. But Douglas could not have rallied the North to enter into a war to suppress Southern secession. In fact, in the month that the Senate remains in session after Lincoln's inaugural in March of 1861, Douglas is making all kinds of noises about the reassertion of popular sovereignty. And those noises will, will often talk. I mean, he will, he will make it clear. He believes that what Southern secession is, is treason. But is he actually going to do anything about it? My guess, and this is part of what, what ifing is, is guessing. Right. My guess is probably not. Probably not. Mm. So you have the American Republic sundered and a separate Southern Confederacy detached. That Southern Confederacy becomes an imperial power dominating the Caribbean Basin and Central America, spreading slavery through that area. The Northern states themselves will probably fracture. The Pacific coast will probably hive off as a separate republic. The Northwestern states may do likewise. New England may be left isolated. But even if that doesn't happen, the Northern states become simply the rump of what was an American republic. And the future from there becomes almost too bleak, too dark to want to contemplate. There is no United States of America to enforce a Monroe Doctrine. There is no United States of America to intervene in World War I to fend off German militarism. There is no United States to deal with the possible rise of fascism as a result. There is no United States to deal with a Cold War. There, the, the ramifications that flow downstream from the election of 1860 mm. are numerous and terrible to contemplate. So if he had not been elected in 1860, we would certainly not be living in the same world that we are living in today. And I think we would, in fact, be living in a much darker, circumscribed, and hopeless world. Mm. 
Wonderful answer, um, and I could not agree more. Uh, we like to, and I, I want to be respectful of your time and our listeners' time, but we'd like to end with this question. Um, what is your favorite Lincoln anecdote or Lincoln story? Oh, there's so many of them, but I'll tell you my favorite. <laughs> my favorite can be found in uh, Michael Burlingame's edition of John Nicolay's uh, notes on Lincoln. Michael gave it the, uh, the title, An Oral Biography of Abraham Lincoln. But it's an anecdote which indicates that while Lincoln often said that he was uh, a retailer rather than a wholesaler of funny stories, um, this one shows that he could get off good ones entirely on his own. Um, Bluff Ben Wade, radical Republican, severe critic of Lincoln, one day becomes so exercised at, at Lincoln's inertia that he storms down Pennsylvania Avenue from Capitol Hill to the White House, up the steps to Lincoln's second floor office, into Lincoln's office, and he begun, begins railing at Lincoln and telling Lincoln uh, that everything he's doing is wrong and he needs to do this, that, and the other. Lincoln interrupts him and Lincoln says, oh, Senator, that reminds me of a story. At which point, Wade erupts. A story. I am sick of hearing of your stories. Do you not know that hell is not half a mile off? <laughs> Lincoln sits back and says, Senator, isn't that about the distance between here and the Capitol? <laughs> Wade, <laughs> Wade just turned around, walked out down the steps, down the driveway. He met a friend out at the sidewalk. Well, Lincoln sold me that time. <laughs> he certainly <laughs> did. What a wonderful story. And yes, what a nimble imagination that Lincoln had in dealing with a character, a humorless, righteous, virtuous character like Bluff Ben Wade. Mm -hmm. Wonderful story. Well, uh, Professor Gelzo, it's been a real pleasure. Um, can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule to uh, talk with us today. And I'm sure the many listeners of the Lincoln Log podcast appreciate it as well. All right. Thank you so much, Josh. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Lincoln Log. You can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And if you like this podcast, please consider rating it on iTunes and leaving a review. This helps other people find the show.